Greetings. This is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined on the podcast today by Diamond Hill's Chendor Virapan, and we'll be discussing his most recent international perspectives, which can be found on the Diamond Hill website at diamond-hill.com. You'll have to bear with me as I go through Chendor's credentials. They are numerous and they are impressive. A Bachelor's of Science in Computer Science and a Master's of Science in Biology, both from the University of Nebraska. A Master's of Bioscience Management from the Keck Graduate Institute of Applied Life Sciences. And a PhD in Genetics, Molecular, and Cellular Biology from the University of Southern California. Chendor's piece focuses on Irum's Law and the ongoing evolution of the pharmaceutical industry. Don't be embarrassed if you haven't heard of Irum's Law. I can admit that I didn't know what it was until I read this piece. Many of you may be familiar with Moore's Law, which references the exponential growth in the number of transistors that can be placed onto an integrated circuit, or more broadly is used to describe the exponential growth of various technologies. Irum is simply Moore, spelled in reverse, and describes the steady decline in biopharma research and development since the 1950s as drug approvals fell by 50% per inflation-adjusted billion dollars spent on R&D every nine years, meaning that R&D slowed but also became more expensive. That's about the extent of my knowledge in this area and the reason that I've brought Chendor onto the podcast to break down the outlook for the biopharma industry and dig into the weeds on Irum's Law. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chendor. Chendor, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while since we've spoken and the world is, is quite different. You know, when we last spoke, it was the middle of April. We were in the throes of the pandemic with the main focus, you know, being on flattening the curve. Before we get into your piece in particular, can you give us your thoughts on where we stand right now in the battle against COVID-19? Hi, Doug. Thank you for having me on again. Um, actually, I'm pretty encouraged by the progress we made in the battle against COVID. Um, in the previous podcast, we outlined the potential therapeutic and diagnostic options that we could have uh, for COVID, and we've made substantial progress since then. Um, the goal back then was to actually flatten the curve. So in some ways, or in many ways, you've dealt with the problem of overwhelming our healthcare system. So that's kind of taken care of, but the virus is still spreading regardless of social distancing and other physical measures. So we still need therapeutics, vaccines, and uh, diagnostics to halt the spread of the disease and also to treat it. Um, so we see pretty good progress. Uh, back then, my concern was, uh, my primary concern was safety. So I'm happy to report that across the board, we've seen a very acceptable safety profile, um, be it the two currently authorized or emergency authorized drugs, the convalescent farm, uh, uh, plasma, and also Gilead's remdesivir. Um, in addition, the next generation vaccines, which was a, more of a risky venture, they're also showing pretty good safety signals. So uh, that's, that's very good. Um, again, so it's these, you know, we still have to see phase three readouts of some of these trials. So, you know, the, we could still get signals on the safety side, but for now it looks pretty good. 
Um, on, the, on the efficacy side, we still have a pretty narrow therapeutic window for things like plasma and remdesivir. Um, we, so, so for now, we still don't have a good option for a broadly acting antiviral therapy. Um, so the industry is now moving on to combination studies, so that'll be critical. Combination studies are not that surprising in antiviral land because uh, quite a few uh, viral diseases need combination therapies to, uh, to control the spread of the virus or the replication of the virus. Uh, in terms of vaccines, multiple vaccines have made good progress. I'm especially encouraged by the next generation vaccines, uh, the mRNAs and the viral vectors. Um, uh, these trials are in phase three. Um, um, recruitment is going very well. And in the next few months, we should, we should see some preliminary data readouts. So fingers crossed on that and hopefully um, we'll see good signals. And what I'm looking for is essentially durability of immune response. Um, we've seen signals that immune response is actually uh, better than patients who have normally recovered. So that's a very good signal for a vaccine. The question is, will the patient or will the, the person who takes the vaccine, would they develop long-term cellular memory? And if the antibody levels remain above the required threshold and also stable over time. So this will be important in preventing a reinfection or perhaps the emergence of a slightly mutated version of COVID. Um, I don't expect vaccines to be a one and done deal. I think uh, vaccines will keep the spread and the, the severity of the infection at bay. But um, as of now, my theory is we will still need repeat vaccines or maybe different forms of vaccines um, if there is another outbreak in the near future, if you get a second wave, for example. Um, we've also discussed antibody prophylaxis. So this kind of sits between therapy and vaccine. Um, we discussed Regeneron uh, last, and they have been extremely quick in uh, getting the cocktail ready. And now they're entering phase three trials. Uh, Eli Lilly is also looking at antibody prophylaxis. So I think all these, all these uh, you know, strategies of treatment or prevention are coming along uh, you know, better than I expected, to be honest with you. So I'm, I'm very encouraged. But you are, you are definitely the right guy to talk to when it comes to this. Um, so let's talk about the piece that you wrote. You begin your piece discussing Irum's law. And I hope I'm saying that right. I know it's just the, re the reverse of Moore's law. Um, I discussed a bit of that in, in the introduction. So I provided kind of the layman's view of, of Irum's law. Uh, can you dig into the details and walk us through what it means and the theories explaining why? You know, we've seen a decline in research and development in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, so Irum's law essentially just describes the decline of R&D productivity since, you know, for the last 50, 60 years of, of drug development. Um, there are, you know, you can, you can think about this in multiple ways, but I found this paper written in 2012 by Warrington et al., to be, you know, to be a very good distilled version of why we're seeing decline in R&D productivity over time. Um, there, are, there are four essential, you know, overarching theories that were proposed. And the first one is, you know, it's kind of smartly described in the paper as the better than the Beatles problem. So what this essentially mean is the, the you know, a blockbuster band or a blockbuster drug has already been discovered. And the, the bar to clear for a new drug in the same indication is going to be much more difficult. You know, like if you listen to a great guitar solo, 
you still compare that to Jimi Hendrix. So, you know, Jimi Hendrix did his thing and it was the blockbuster guitar player and everything is kind of compared to that. So it's, it's kind of like, it, it's similar in the drug world. So for example, you can take Lipitor, uh, you know, it's a cholesterol drug. It was a mega blockbuster. Uh, it works in a, it works pretty effectively in a broad population, but any new cholesterol drug has a much higher bar to clear uh, in order to either get approval or even get reimbursement from payers or insurance companies. So that is essentially the, um, the, the first theory, which is, you know, really effective drugs have already been discovered and anything new that comes through has a much higher bar to clear. So companies will have to really innovate in a given indication um, to maintain growth and productivity of R&D. The second theory is rather straightforward. You know, since Congress act, acted in the 1960s uh, with, with uh, you know, several laws and regulations uh, upon which the FDA acts on, and one of them is a much higher bar for safety and efficacy. So you don't want snake oil salesmen selling, you know, placebos as drugs in the market. You want to see actual safety and efficacy signal. So over time, this, this, the burden on companies have increased a lot. I mean, the paperwork for approval sometimes runs into the millions of pages. Um, I, I have personal experience with clinical trials and I've seen, you know, shipping crates worth of folders that has to be shipped to the FDA, but now it's electronic, but it's, there's still a lot of paperwork. So that in a way, you know, the, because of this, there's more conservatism uh, that has crept into the industry. So, you know, uh, companies don't want to think outside the box. They don't want to get into risky investments. They just want their R and D um, efforts to kind of clear the FDA and then get into the market. So, that has been a kind of a bottleneck for uh, R&D productivity in, in, in pharma. The third theory is, you can think of it as an R&D arms race. So, you know, when there is a hot new disease or a hot new drug modality, you know, companies jump into it. You know, there's a lot of input expenses when it comes to, you know, it'll be the same drug, but you'll have four companies spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get to market first. Um, and getting to market first is actually pretty beneficial because the first mover effect in areas of unmet need is actually pretty significant. Now, you would assume that additional competition for the same drug class would be good in a free marketplace, but it doesn't quite work that way in pharma. So you have, you know, companies rarely engage in, uh, in price wars, and that's partly due to the high input costs. Um, Again, so, you know, so usually the, the industry goes in cycles. There's a lot of investment in one place. Overall R&D expenses go up and therefore R&D productivity falls and the industry responds by cutting R&D. And sometimes cutting R&D is, could have the opposite effect where it could curtail innovation. So this is kind of like a seesaw effect that goes on. And the fourth theory is somewhat technical. So I'll kind of say that over the last 30, 40 years, we've had very good advances in R&D. Um, you know, the, but at the, at the same time, the probability of a given molecule to get into the marketplace has been somewhat flat. So we've had a lot of advances and we have combinatorial chemistry where drug candidate libraries have run into the millions. Uh, we have very high throughput screening methods. We have advanced drug testing techniques, and yet the probability of success has not improved very much. 
Um, we've also seen the emergence of in silico biology. What I mean by this is we can use computer models and simulations to predict safety and efficacy. Again, still hasn't helped very much. Um, there are several reasons that has been proposed. To me, what it comes down to is that we have a lack of understanding of biology at the systems level. And what I mean by systems level is, you know, the human genome, like the number of genes that runs us essentially are 20,000 genes per cell. And these genes come together to form molecular pathways. Thousands of these pathways interact to, you know, for cellular function and trillions of cells come together to form tissues and organs and ultimately the human being. So modern techniques tend to give us a very narrow view of a given, given molecular pathway. We are very, very good in finding out how drugs bind to a target with extreme precision. But the issue is we kind of miss the big picture along the way. So in the paper, they call it molecular reductionism. Uh, this is not to say that molecular reductionism is bad. So for example, if you have like a single mutation uh, that's driving a cancer, we can hone in on that mutation. We can find a drug that precisely binds to that mutation and stop the cancer. So that's targeted therapy and that's done really well over the last 20 years. And also in inherited diseases as well, like there's been a lot of promise there. But in general, when it comes to more complex diseases, like, you know, uh, new, like neurological diseases, immunology, uh, complex cancers, we've had less luck. So, this is, so these four theories have been proposed and I, I kind of warmed up to it because I have some experience looking at different facets of this at different points of my career. And just looking at how uh, medicine has evolved over the last say 15, 20 years, I think the next 20, 30 years is going to be very interesting because uh, we are finally prepared to break some of the tenets of Irum's law. So let's look at from the business standpoint. So how have companies compensated for this decline of innovation uh, in order to maintain revenue streams or grow them that were previously associated with new drugs? Right. Yeah. So what, how, the, the way pharma companies responded was by just getting bigger and more diverse. So they moved away from essentially innovative pharma and added um, adjacent verticals in healthcare. So this could be consumer health, it could be animal health, it could be medical devices, tools, vaccines. So companies started adding these verticals and try to maintain the cash flows as productivity in innovative pharma was waning over time. Um, some companies also increased prices of aging drugs. And we saw that, you saw the fallout from that uh, about five years ago when you had the generic price inflation crisis. And some companies just cut R&D and gave up on innovation altogether. Um, others, you know, returned cash to investors in the form of dividends and buybacks instead of reallocating some of that into productive R&D. That being said, I think the industry in general is waking up to the promise of a, a new cycle of innovation and discoveries, you know, that is essentially powered by, uh, you know, advances in genetics and molecular biology, and also, you know, the exponential growth of compute power that's available for scientists. So in your industry perspectives piece, you put forth the theory that in order to succeed in the future, biopharma firms need to break what we've been talking about, your room's law. 
Specifically, you mentioned uh, Roche as one of the companies at the forefront of this attempt to break the mold. So talk to me about Roche and why you feel their best position amongst their peers to succeed. Yeah, Roche has, Roche has a long track record as a pharma company. So it's, it's actually a very interesting case study, but also a very interesting stock in terms of its given valuation compared to its very strong fundamentals. But simply put, Roche is, for the size of, you know, Roche being a mega cap name, is extremely nimble and open-minded for a large pharmaceutical name. And you can see that during their earnings. You can, you can listen to the earnings calls and you, can, you would think that you're listening to a biotech company. They're pretty nimble and they're pretty open-minded. Um, so before the 1980s, you know, Roche was, again, a diversified pharma company. They had interest in you know, primary care medicine, uh, dyes, cosmetics, uh, diagnostics, but the culture was always in the constant lookout for innovation. I can't really tell when that changed, but I think what, what had happened was there was a very, very important discovery, which was something called a, a polymerase chain reaction, which is PCR. Uh, and PCR was critical for the process of cloning. And cloning was extremely important for the production of drugs known as biologics. So Roche recognized that you know, cloning is the foundational technology that can just birth an entire new industry. So rather than just you know, tucking that technology in in their, you know, in their pharmaceutical division, instead of doing that, it actually created a separate division uh, with an independent research arm dedicated to just biologics. And this was done through an acquisition of one of the pioneers of this field and the company is called Genentech. But not just that, they actually doubled down on that focus by shedding non-core assets and fully focusing on biologics. So in the 2000s and 2010s, what happened was they were so successful. I mean, they marketed one of, you know, probably the, one of the most successful drugs of all time. You know, they had two or three of these drugs that has done really well for them. But the, the thing is that Roche is always looking ahead. So they didn't just stop there. I mean, they wanted to break uh, the first standard of Irum's law, the first theory of Irum's law, which is, can you do better? And in fact, they did. So for each of those drugs that they marketed, they came up with next generation drugs that either complemented or, or even replaced some of those older drugs and, and, and has safety and efficacy signals that's even better. So that is something that they've done to break the first theory of Irum's law. And the other portion of it is they also recognize that the FDA is always open to looking at areas of unmet medical need. And the FDA has several programs to incentivize companies to do that. And one of them is the breakthrough uh, designation. And Roche has, Roche has really focused in those areas and has an industry leading number of breakthrough designations, which um, correlate with market dominance if these drugs get into market. So they have an industry leading presence there. So again, second, th second theory of Irum's law when it comes to the cautious regulator, uh, they're dealing with that pretty, pretty well. And also they are experts in immunology and oncology, but instead of doubling down in those spaces, they understood that there is additional competition coming in. So they didn't want to do an R&D arms race which, uh, with, with other companies. So instead of doing that, they looked out at other indications. So they looked at, you know, rare diseases, they looked at neuroscience, they looked at um, blood-based diseases like hemophilia. So eventually they launched pretty successful drugs in MS and hemophilia. 
And then they're also studying deadly rare diseases like Huntington's and spinal muscular atrophy. And they're also open to moving away from biologics itself. You know, they're investing into gene therapy, bispecifics, antibody conjugates, and even small molecules, the traditional small molecule. So looking at long-term, I think Roche is well-positioned to, to leverage, you know, its internal R&D um, quality and also scale. And in addition, they're looking even further ahead, like 20, 30 years ahead, because medicine in the future is going to be more about precision medicine and more about personalized medicine. And in order to do that, you need a lot of genetic, um, molecular, and clinical data. And, and Roche has access to all that information through its, through its own diagnostics division. So it plans to leverage data to, to essentially come up with new targets in new diseases. So in my estimation, I think Roche is one of those companies that leads the race uh, in the effort to break uh, Irum's law. Uh, again, success is not a given, but it certainly has the qualities to deliver very attractive returns over time. So what are, the, what are some of the other companies, uh, firms that are looking to do the same, kind of following Roche's footsteps of breaking Irum's law? Um, you know, what other firms are out there and what is it about those firms that could yeah. make it possible? Sure. I mean... I mean, there are firms that are, you know, are, that are still uh, want to maintain their way of life, essentially. But then in general, I feel the, the industry is waking up to, you know, the innovations we've had over the last 20 years. I mean, we only sequenced the human genome. The first draft was only completed in 2003. Genetics and molecular biology at scale did not happen until the 2010s. And given that, you know, the drug innovation cycle takes about 20 years, you know, companies have realized that this is the time to take advantage of the data explosion that we've had over the last 10 years. So I think GSK is an interesting example. Um, you know, they've had a change in CEO, but it's a, it's a classic diversified company where you have, you know, you have pharmaceuticals, you have vaccines, you have health, uh, consumer health, but they made the conscious choice of moving away from consumer health. And uh, they started a JV with Pfizer, but then they really looked into innovative pharma. And they hired um, uh, a new CSO, his name is Hal Barron. And Hal was actually one of the leaders at Google. So he headed uh, Calico, which is a biotech subsidiary of Google. And they focused on you know, next generation technologies to understand the signs of aging. Um, so bringing a person like, CS, uh, like uh, Hal Barron into GSK is actually a dramatic change. And he is focused on large scale genetic and medical databases. Uh, he wants to lay the foundation for truly data-driven research at, uh, at GSK and try to understand the complex you know, biological pathways that drive many diseases. So I have met him in the past. I met him last year, and I was very impressed with him. So I think over the next 10, 20 years, I think these efforts will pay dividends for GSK. Another company is Novartis, and I think uh, they embarked in a similar situation maybe a few years ago, maybe before GSK. And they're well along the path to break some tenets of Irum's law. Um, they hired the chief medical officer as the new CEO. Um, they started hosting a lot of science-based events, trying to highlight the investments into areas of unmet need. And they also shared non-code assets, most notably their huge eye care division called Alcon. Um, Astellas is a name uh, that we own as well. Um, again, it's done a pretty good job moving away from primary care medicine and into, break, into breakthrough cancer medications. And they've done that through pretty smart partnerships and acquisitions. 
it's also, you know, over time, the last couple of years has built up and, you know, an impressive line of drugs and drug candidates that are either first in class or best in class. Meanwhile, you know, they maintain a very healthy balance sheet or allocating capital in a very smart fashion. And this is actually a departure um, for a Japanese company, Estella is a Japanese company, and Japanese companies tend to be pretty conservative. So I think Estella has made bold decisions to, you know, to break some of Irum's uh, theories of Irum's law, and I think uh, it'll pay off long-term as well. And finally, I think Regeneron is, a, it's a slightly different situation. They're a young company. Um, they don't suffer from the effects of Irum's law on legacy drugs. Um, but from the get-go, they focused on finding novel targets. Um, it, again, they leveraged next-generation sequencing data. They invested a lot into human, uh, sequence, human genome sequencing and formed pretty large consortia to actually exploit data. And they also have one of the industry's best antibody production platforms and, and mouse testing models. And see, they've been pretty successful more recently. And again, uh, the speed in which Regeneron has brought uh, antibody prophylaxis for COVID into phase three trials, the speed at which they've done that is actually a testament to, you know, the kind of technology that they leverage um, to have R&D, to have much better R&D productivity. So, I mean, there are, there are other examples, but I think in general, the industry is moving uh, towards implementing similar strategies. And I think we're entering a golden age of discovery, um, given where pharma valuations are today, um, and given our long-term view of fundamentals, I think companies that are well-prepared and are good allocators of capital, I think they stand to benefit greatly. Well, Chendor Virapan, International Senior Research Associate here at Diamond Hill Capital Management, thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate your taking some time to talk through your industry perspectives piece, as always, very fascinating. Wishing you and your family nothing but the best and hope to have you on the podcast once more. Thanks, Dad. You too. Thank you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.